Father, we thank you for the truth of what we have just heard and of what we've just sung. That through the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ, on the cross, grace and mercy was poured out. Father, from heaven, from your heart, in our direction, Lord, you, you sacrificed your son. He shed his blood. He laid down his life. Yes, to satisfy your wrath against sin. Yes, to, to reverse the, the curse that sin brought into this world. But, Father, your word also tells us in so many different words and in so many different ways and, and, in, and in instruction and in illustration and in parable form, all of this was done to reconcile us, lost and, de- and dying sinners, with a holy and living God. Father, that we might know you, that we might walk with you, that we might have a relationship with you that begins here on earth, that and that is fulfilled and, and becomes even greater once we reach heaven and throughout all of eternity. Father, what we're trying to say and what we're trying to praise you for this morning is that you are a God who, who saves. That through the cross of Jesus Christ, you have saved us. That we can know you and we can love you and we can walk with you and we can serve you and we can return praise back to you. Father, sometimes boldly and sometimes in our brokenness. And Father, sometimes uh, we can do it very clearly. And Father, sometimes we do it with fumbling words. But... But Father, in our hearts this morning, those of us who know you, we, we simply, what we're trying to say is thank you for the cross. Thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus. Thank you for the grace to undeserving sinners, the mercy you showed us, not giving us what we deserve. Father, we thank you that your love knows no limit, Father, that there's no soul that can't be saved, there's no life that can't be redeemed. You have, you have made provision, Father, for anyone who will call on the name of the Lord to be saved. And Father, I'm reminded of the words of the prophet Jeremiah, the words you spoke through the prophet Jeremiah when you said this, when you said, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom or a mighty man boast of his might. Don't let a rich man boast of his riches, but let the one who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness and justice and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Father, help, let that, that be the just sort of the, the grounding truth that, that we return to today, Father, that, that you are the God who can be known. You're the God who's made yourself known. You're the God who wants us to know you. And, and Father, unbelievable it is that you want to know us. And Father, the way you've made yourself known, you've done it through your son, the Lord Jesus, but you've done it through your word that so many of us, Father, we're going to be seated in a moment. We're going to hold it in our hands, this precious eternal treasure of your word. And Father, no, no person, no human is, is capable of fully explaining and, and preaching and proclaiming all that this book conveys to us, all that you have to say to, uh, to us through it. But our, our prayer and our hope and our confidence this morning is, Lord, that as your word is preached, that your spirit will move and that he will be the one who takes your truth and applies it to our hearts, that you will be the one who magnifies your name here because What ultimately happens isn't our will, but it's as Jesus taught us to pray, your will that is to be done. And I guess, Father, what I'm trying to say through all these words is that for the next few minutes, would you just come and be our teacher? Helping us not to listen to the voice of a man, but to listen to the the speaking, the voice of your spirit. As you speak to our hearts about the things that are true, Father, the things that are eternal, the things you want us to know, draw us close to your heart. Father, we invite your Holy Spirit to come. We know he's here because you promised, Jesus promised, wherever two or three gathered, you're, you're there among us. But Father, we want more than that. We want your spirit to move among us. We want your spirit to make himself known among us by guiding us in truth because your word is truth, by guarding us from error because otherwise we'll just leave more confused than when we came. 
Father, we want your spirit, we ask your Holy Spirit to deliver our hearts from the stuff we carried in with us that, that threatens to steal away the good seeds scattered on the soil of our hearts. Father, for some of us, it's, it's a proud heart, and some of us, it's a broken heart, and some of us, it's a hard, indifferent heart, Father, that threatens to, to keep us from, from hearing in a personal and a very pointed way from you. Father, sweep it all aside. Deal with us where we are so that for the next few minutes as we study your word, we might see Jesus. Father, may we see Jesus clearly this morning as we study your word. May we see Jesus only this morning as we study your word. And Father, when we leave in a little while, I pray every heart leaves rejoicing. But it's not because we came to church or learned something new or sang our favorite song or saw our best friend. But Father, I pray we leave rejoicing in a little while because we got to spend time at the feet of our Savior Jesus who also calls himself our friend. Lord, we love you. We love him. We thank you for the promise that you will be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. And as you're seated, we'll dismiss for Children's Church. There are boys and girls here this morning. I'm looking around. I'm not seeing a lot of them, but there might be a couple here somewhere. Our five-year-olds up through our second graders. And now is their chance to... uh, to make a break for Children's Church. And if not, I want everybody else to grab your Bible, and I want you to turn in it with me to the very same passage that I asked you to turn to last Sunday, which is Matthew chapter 6. I want you to turn in your Bible this morning with me to Matthew chapter 6 as we continue moving forward, moving ahead in our study of what Jesus meant when he called us, when he said that as his people, we are to be a house of prayer. I want you to find your way to Matthew 6 because I want to read the passage right from the start this morning. I want to read the whole thing, uh, what Jesus said here before we begin to talk about it. So make your way there. And as you're doing so, uh, what I want you to know about this morning's study in God's Word is, is we're, we're, we've sort of worked our way the past couple of Sundays through just some of the, the principles, the, the pattern as we talked about last Sunday, Jesus gave us uh, for praying, for communicating with God that He gave us in the Lord's Prayer, that He gave it to us as a pattern. And and now what we want to look at this morning, we want to look at the same passage but from a different perspective and and begin for these last few weeks of this series of studies uh, talking about and actually deciding how we're going to respond to the call that Jesus has given us to be a house of prayer. So we're going to look at the very same passage, but we're going to look at something we we intentionally, that I intentionally passed over last Sunday in the hopes that we could really give our full attention to it by returning there again today. So as I said, I'm in Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to begin reading in verse 5. I'm going to go down through verse 13. If you weren't here last Sunday, you may find, however, that, uh, that even so, the words I'm about to read may be very familiar to your ears. If you were the, uh, here last Sunday, the words are going to be very familiar to you. You can follow along where this is what the Word of God says. This is Jesus speaking on the subject of prayer. He said, when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, Jesus is talking to his people, his men and women, his young people, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. For they suppose they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then, verse 9, in this way. 
Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. It was back in World War I, about 100 years ago, almost exactly, that airplanes made their debut, their initial appearance, as instruments, as tools of military combat, World War I. And the deal in World War I was essentially this, that the way airplanes, air power was used in World War I, is that squadrons of airplanes would take off and they'd fly together. And they'd fly together until they engaged or they encountered an enemy squadron of airplanes, at which point the airplanes on both sides would peel off in all sorts of different directions and begin to engage one another, plane to plane, enemy to enemy, in what very quickly became known as dogfights. You've heard of dogfights before. One plane engaging and seeking to take down another. Uh, Such encounters uh, uh, quickly became the stuff of legend, of, of celebrity, as the idea really became, at least among those who were engaged in them, that a pilot's objective, a pilot's desire, was to rack up as many shoot-downs. They called them as many kills as possible. And the more kills you, uh, uh, you, you accumulated, the more famous you became. And, 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 and such men came home from war as heroes if they were successful uh, in, in, in the air battles in World War I in that way. But between World War I and World War II, a strategic decision, a strategic change was made among those in charge of the military about the way airplanes were to be used in combat. Because what it was determined upon a sort of evaluation after the conclusion of World War I was that while dogfights were, were glamorous and, and they accumulated a lot of, of acclaim and accolades for those who were successful in them, that that was a very sort of uh, a legendary and exciting sort of thing to think about. They garnered great attention. What it was decided by those in charge of, of the military was they actually did dogfights very little to actually advance the cause toward victory on the battlefield. And so the change that was adopted between World Wars I and II was that the the military adopted the tactic of flying in formation. And the idea was the planes would all, when it was time to go to battle, take off together, and they would fly together, but when they encountered the enemy, they would stay together. And they would pick one specific target, they'd know what it was in advance, and they would move toward it and stay together and attack it and bomb it without turning back, without separating from one another until the commander determined the mission was complete. And while that tactic minimized the individual accolades, it it minimized the individual glory, there weren't as many name-known heroes coming back from World War II as World War I. What was discovered very quickly is that their united and collective efforts made air power one of the most successful tools and instruments of war. And I share that with you this morning because that same basic principle, the principle of flying in formation, of coming together and sticking together until the mission is accomplished, is exactly what brings us back this morning to this same passage, Jesus' words here in Matthew chapter 6, the passage that we all commonly know as the Lord's Prayer. Because last week when we looked at this same passage, what we saw is that in it, in giving us what we know and what we call the Lord's Prayer, Jesus was giving us a pattern, 
A pattern for keeping our focus as we're conversing with God uh, so that we don't uh, sort of drift off in all sorts of different directions, that we don't know what to say. No, Jesus said, when you pray, pray in this way, follow the pattern that I have given you. That's how we looked at it last Sunday. But this morning, what I want you to know is there's something else here in the Lord's Prayer that we didn't even touch on at all by design. I made a strategic choice. We wouldn't talk about it last Sunday because I want to zero in and focus on it this Sunday, something that I actually believe, this is my opinion, you may disagree, I believe it may be the most significant thing about the Lord's Prayer of all. And while it is, in fact, something, as I'll show you in a moment, that's written all over the passage, it's seen in practically every verse we just read, it is also, as I've discovered in my own life and experience, astonishingly easy to miss. And it is this, that in giving us the words, the pattern of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus did not just give us, teach us how it was that he wanted us to pray. He didn't just give us a pattern for how we should pray, but in giving the words of the Lord's Prayer to us, Jesus was teaching us, here it is, to pray together. I think the most important thing, perhaps the single most important thing about the Lord's Prayer is that in it, Jesus taught us that we are to pray together. And that's huge, at least for us here this morning, because as you know by now, or I hope you've picked up by now, the theme of this series is house of prayer. It is not life of prayer. It is not discipline of prayer. It is not the habit of prayer. It's not the practice of prayer. Uh, the theme that we are looking at is the house of prayer because that's what Jesus called us to be. And so what we've spent these last several weeks doing is studying what Jesus meant when he said that's what he wants, the places where his people to gather to be. Jesus said, wherever my people come together, whether it's a big group or a small group, the way that you will know, this is Jesus' view, that they belong to me is they are people who pray. And they are people who, as we'll see this morning, pray together. And, and, I, and I really believe that the, that the unstated, perhaps, and yet unmistakable message here is that if we truly seek to follow Jesus, if we seek to live for him to the fullest in this world, he expects that as fellow believers in, in him, that we will make praying together a top priority. And, and I'm convinced that as much as anything else, that's what Jesus meant when he said in verse 9, when you pray, pray this way. Pray this way. And as a result, I believe that through the Lord's Prayer, there are three challenges. And this is what I want to share with you from God's Word this morning. Three challenges that I believe Jesus issues our church. If we are serious about being, becoming, figuring out what it means to be the house of prayer, he's called us to be. Now, I believe he asks this of every church, but I'm not concerned so much about every church. I'm concerned about this church, about our church. And these are three challenges I believe Jesus issues to us. If we want to heed his call to be the people of prayer, he's called us to be. So let me give you these, these three challenges. Let's talk through them and see where it leads. Beginning with, starting back up at verse 5, number one, acknowledging. The first thing Jesus calls us here to do is to acknowledge that he has, in fact, called us to pray together. The first challenge the Lord's Prayer gives us this morning as we take this second look at it together is to acknowledge the call to recognize the fact that Jesus really has called us as believers to pray together. Because here's the thing. Here's the thing not readily apparent to us in any of our English translations of the Bible. But 
that would have been so obvious when Jesus first said it in this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, and would have been so obvious to the original readers of the Bible who read Matthew's words recorded in the Greek language that that it wouldn't have even, I believe, that to Jesus' original audience and to Matthew's original audience, it wouldn't even merit it of mention because it was so obvious to them in what Jesus said, and yet our English Bibles miss it. And what we miss in our English Bibles is this, that with the notable exception of verse 6, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes, With the notable exception of verse 6, every single pronoun in this passage is plural. Every single pronoun in the passage we just read is written to us in the plural. Listen again and let me explain what I mean. Verse 5, look at your Bible, Matthew 6, verse 5. When you, that is not you, and then you over here, and then you back there, and then me up here. No, when Jesus said you, he said when you, plural, All y'all, when you pray, Jesus said, you, plural, are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in synagogues and street corners, so they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full, but you, plural, when you, plural, pray, go into your, I'm sorry, not there, I said notable exception, verse 6, got carried away already, but we're going to read it anyway, go into your inner room, close your door, pray to your father in secret, Your father sees what's done in secret, will reward you, but then Jesus shifts immediately back. And when you, as a group, are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose they'll be heard for their many words. So do, and if you looked at the original here, there is another plural you here. So you do not be like them, for your group, Father, knows what you need before you ask him. Every single one is plural. We can't necessarily see that in our English Bibles. And we don't, therefore, necessarily apply it that way. Now, you might look at that and say, well, of course that's all in the plural. Of course it is. Jesus was talking to a group. It is, after all, the Sermon on the Mount. Sermons are given to groups of people. Sermons aren't given to one person by themselves, generally speaking. It only makes sense that Jesus would speak in the plural, which is true. But what about the prayer itself, beginning in verse 9, going down through verse 13? Listen to it with fresh ears. Maybe you've never heard it this way before. When you pray, pray this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Jesus did not say, do you hear what I'm saying? Jesus did not say to us, when you pray, pray this way, my Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give me this day my daily bread and forgive me my debts as I forgive those who sinned against me. And don't lead me into... No, he didn't say that. It's all plural. It's all together. Meaning that regardless of whatever conclusions or or inferences or ideas that may lead us to, the bottom line, what I'm trying to establish for us here this morning, is that Jesus gave us the pattern of the Lord's Prayer, assuming that as his people we'd pray together. Assuming that we would be praying together. 
together. And if you begin to work your way through the book of Acts, the story of the church in the New Testament, and we're going to look at a few of these in just a couple of minutes. If you work your way through the book of Acts, that's the way you always see God's people pray. From the very start, literally from Acts chapter 1, you see God's people regularly, frequently, on a weekly, if not daily basis, coming together to seek God's face. You begin to read the letters of the New Testament. Read the letters of Paul and Peter and others. They record prayers in their letters all the time. They're almost always written to the group, for the group, assuming the group, the church, is praying together. One of the best is at the end of Ephesians chapter 3. I'm not going to read it for you, but look at it later. Ephesians 3, 14 to 21. One of Paul's best prayers, the most beautiful prayers in the whole New Testament, and it's all written with the assumption that we are together praying as God's people. And so the first challenge this, this passage gives us this morning, the first challenge the Lord's Prayer gives us is a very simple, but it's a, a very important one. We need to acknowledge that Jesus has, in fact, called all of us to pray together. He assumes and expects that we are going to do it. You say, but what about verse 6? What about verse 6? It's not in the plural. It's, it's different, and, and it seems to be saying something else. Uh, it sounds, Aaron, like you're making a really strong statement, and yet there's a really big exception. Well, let's talk about verse 6. It leads to the second thing here that we need to see this morning. And there is a second challenge the Lord's Prayer issues to us. The first challenge is to acknowledge we've been called to pray together. I think the second challenge, therefore, and verse 6 invites us to do this, is to answer the objections we have to praying together. The second challenge this passage gives us is to address and to answer the objections that are out there, and maybe even in here, to this call to pray together. And believe you me, we have plenty of them. Many of which, and I know this because I harbored them for years. I, I held them inside. I rationalized that, that praying together isn't all that important. Prayer meetings aren't all that significant that and so what I'm going to do for the next few minutes is share with you some of which from my own experience, some of which comes from just my observation of the church and my conversations with others. But what I'm saying to you is we have objections to praying together, or we'd be doing more of it, wouldn't we? And I think Jesus invites us here to do that. So for the next couple of minutes, I just want to discuss and see if we can reconcile some of these objections. I, I want to do it as respectfully, but I also want to do it as candidly as possible on why we often object as believers to coming together to pray regularly. From a practical perspective, we've got all kinds of objections. Probably the most frequent one I've ever heard, and probably the most frequent one I've voiced, at least in my own mind, the quietness of my own mind, is that I don't want to go to prayer meetings, and I don't want to respond to the call to pray together, because my experience is that prayer meetings are, first of all, boring. And you smile because you've thought the same thing, Right? I've said to you before, even during this series, that the reason most Christians don't go to prayer meetings is most Christians have already been to prayer meetings, and they came, and they saw, and they didn't like what happened. And so they don't go back. That's what I mean by being as candid as possible. A lot of us choose not to pray with other believers because we think of prayer, frankly, as boring. But I've discovered something, been reminded of something over the course of the last year or so, which is that God is not the author of boredom. God is a creative God. God is a dynamic, indescribable, awesome God. He is not the author of boredom. So you know what that's led me to conclude? That if the prayer meeting is boring, as my kids say, that's a you problem. That's not a God problem. That's a me problem. There's something that I'm missing. There's something I don't understand. There's something I am overlooking. 
And I want to assure you that having been to many, many lifeless prayer gatherings and led many, many more of them in my life, it is something we are striving here hard to change, to make sure that when God's people come together to pray, the first thing they are definitely not is boring, because I don't think God's the author of boredom. What's another objection? Another objection we have to praying together is sometimes prayer meetings are, first of all, they're boring. Other times, uh, the objection, maybe it seems a little more legitimate, is they're awkward, To come together and pray with other believers is awkward, which I will grant you is true. Praying in public, out loud with other people, just like any sort of other public speaking, sort of, I'm going to come and be vulnerable in front of other people, is awkward. It's uncomfortable. Because we wonder, will I say it right? Will, 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 will people laugh at me? Will they judge me for the way I pray out loud? Everybody else prays better than I do. I don't want to go somewhere that is supposed to be a spiritually enriching experience and find myself embarrassed the entire time. And so I don't go and I don't pray because praying together is awkward. But let me ask you a question. When's the last time you improved at anything in life by choosing not to do it at all anymore? There's only one way to get better, to improve, become more comfortable praying together, and that is to pray together to do it. Third objection, just as I was thinking about why we don't pray together. Prayer meetings, sometimes we think they're boring. Other times we feel that it's awkward. A uh, uh, third one, this is a big one, they're inconvenient. Praying together with God's people is inconvenient, and it sure is, no doubt about it. It means adjusting your schedule. It means finding time. It means putting other things aside. But let me ask you another question, again, as respectfully but as candidly as possible. Don't we always in life find time for the things we really want to do? If someone after church today offers you two tickets to the Hawkeye game next Saturday or the Cyclone game, as the case may be, and you really want to go, you're going to figure it out, aren't you? You're going to find a place for the kids to go. You're going to find if you need to rearrange the schedule at home or work to to move one appointment to another place. Why? Because you want to be there. And and it's inconvenient, but the, the payoff, the benefit, the joy of participating and attending the event is worth the inconvenience that I have to go through in order to make it happen. We always find time for the things we want to do. Take something even as passive as watching TV. We always find time for our favorite show. And if we don't, we pay $50 extra a month for a DVR with our cable package so we can binge watch all Saturday afternoon and evening. Why? Because we want to. And we find the way to do it. And we're willing to inconvenience ourselves in terms of time and sometimes even our money to be where we want to be. Ironically, though, Jim Simbola, I've heard him say this many times, even as, as Christians, even when it comes to Christian activity, Simbola says this, he says, even as Christians, we pay good money for Christian activities. We'll pay good money and, and invest good time in, in a Christian concert or a Christian conference or a Christian retreat or a weekend together or something like that. He says, here's what he says, but we won't come meet with Jesus for free. Ouch. Why? Because <laughs> it's true. Jesus calls us to come meet together with him for free. And it may be inconvenient, but he calls us to do it anyway. Sometimes we object to praying together because we find it unnecessary. Maybe we can overcome the the boredom and the awkwardness or or inconvenience isn't an issue, but, but our heart's response, our immediate impulse is to say, You know, I I get that you're having prayer meetings, and I get that God's people pray together, and there's a men's prayer group and a women's prayer group and a Friday and this and that and the other thing, but you know, I can pray just as well at home alone, 
Jesus is there with me too, isn't he? He's with me always, even to the end of the age. I can do it by myself, on my own. I don't need to get with other people in order to seek God's face. And that's true. You don't. But do you? Do I? What do I mean? I mean, do we on our own, regularly, frequently, repeatedly, joyfully engage in scripture-fed, spirit-fed, life-giving, worship-based prayer times where God is magnified and my heart is filled with the assurance of who God is and his love for me. Do I do that on a regular basis? Not really. If you Listen, and if you do, great. Please talk to me after the service. I want to know the secret that you've found, and I don't mean that facetiously at all. I'm not saying no one does. I'm just saying most of us probably don't. We need to be together praying as God's people because things happen when we pray together as God's people that we aren't necessarily able doing, able to be doing or to do. And, and even if so, even if we are engaging in dynamic times of prayer, it doesn't change what Jesus said here, which is, as my people pray together. You say, but yeah, what about verse 6? I haven't talked about verse 6 yet. Look at what Jesus said in verse 6. What did he say there? This is what Jesus said. Let's talk about it. But you, and he goes to the singular here. Now he is saying you and you and you back there and you up here and you over there. When you pray, you go into your inner room. You close your door. You pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So in the middle of it all, in calling us to pray together, Jesus gives what appears to be a very individualistic, a very personal, direct, individual word of instruction. And if you ask me, it sort of at first glance sticks out like a, like a sore thumb, like he's talking about all praying together. But then he says, now when you go do it, go by yourself, get as isolated and, and, and as invisible as possible. What is the deal here? What's Jesus saying? Well, first, remember the context. We talked about the context last week. Jesus said what he said here in verse 6 as a result, logically, of what he had said before it in verse 5, which is in verse 5 he addressed our motives in prayer. And in, in talking about our motives for prayer, he addressed or he spoke to the Pharisees. And he said, the Pharisees, he said, don't be like them. They like everybody to know. They like to put on a show when they're praying. They like to be on the street corner and in the marketplace where everybody can see how super spiritual they are. He said, but don't do that. Prayer is not about your reputation before others. Prayer is about your relationship with God. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, verse 5. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and street corners so they may be seen by men. But I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray in a room, close your door, Father in secret, he will reward you. So there is the, the context, but... But still, isn't there a conflict here, perhaps? Does Jesus seem to be saying two things? I don't think so. It sort of looks that way at first, but I don't think Jesus is saying two conflicting things here whatsoever. Instead, I think it's more logical to look at what Jesus says here in verse 6, not as in conflict with the call to pray together that seems to be so clear in the rest of the passage, but as complementary to it. I think Jesus is saying it's not an either-or, it's a both-and. That what Jesus is doing is he is affirming both corporate and private personal prayer. He's saying both are important. It's like two wings of an airplane. Which one would you rather do without? (laughs) Without one, you're not going anywhere. You need both. I think he's saying both matter. Say, but yeah, but the language still screams solitude. I think Jesus is really saying the best way to pray is by ourselves. I mean, look at the words themselves. Go to your inner room. Shut the door. Pray in secret. Your father who sees in secret will reward you. Isn't Jesus saying the best way to pray is all by yourself? 
I don't think so. I think it's important. I think it's vital that we do have personal times of prayer regularly with Jesus, but I don't think that's what he's necessarily only saying here. Instead, what Jesus is saying here, again, it's complimentary because in the original language, in the original Greek, when Jesus used the word here, in my translation it says inner room. Other translations even use the word closet. That was a word that had a wide variety of meanings. But it didn't only mean, in terms of, in the King James, it called it the closet, and it sort of perpetuated this idea down through the years uh, that we're supposed to pray as invisibly and, and, and in as isolated a fashion as possible. But that isn't necessarily as I said, what Jesus was saying here. Instead, what Jesus meant by the word he used, it literally means inner room. Your Bible may say that, but it could also be equally used as the word storeroom. In fact, the word Jesus used here when he said, go pray in your inner room all by yourself, is the very same word he used in Luke chapter 12 to describe a barn where a farmer would, dis- would store all of his crops at harvest time. So it could be a very large place. It could be a very significant place. But, but what Jesus was saying is, yes, there are times when we come aside, when we pray quietly and privately and on our own. But I think what he's reminding us here as well is that's within the context of the fact that we should already be praying together as God's people as well. He's saying, listen, we're called to pray together. We're called to pray with one another. I want you to pray with your brothers and sisters in Christ, but never forget you have this wonderful privilege where you can't escape by yourself quietly and seek his face. It's both. There's not a conflict. There's a complementary teaching here. And Jesus wants us to pursue both. And so we may have our objections, and some may seem biblical, and some may just be very practical, and some may be even selfish and personal. But I think what Jesus calls us here to do is to lay them down, to lay our objections down to praying together, whatever they may be, however logical or rational they may seem to us. And then do one more thing, the third challenge that he gives us here, calling us to pray together. He says, acknowledge, first of all, acknowledge that I have called you to pray together, number one. Second, deal with, respond to your objections to praying together. That's challenge number two. Find out why, if your heart says, I don't want to do it, I don't want to go there, that what that is and, and overcome it. Because the third and the final and the best thing of all that Jesus calls us to do here is to embrace, to embrace the promises of praying together. What Jesus says in the rest of this passage, and we're going to go to some others that show it as well, is if you will respond to my call to pray together, to not just go into your prayer closet by yourself, but but to gather together with my people and pray with them, there are some amazing and wonderful and extraordinary things that can happen. Remember our house of prayer definition, what we've been using each and every week all throughout this series? A house of prayer is a gathering of Christians. It's any gathering of Christians, however great, however small, wherever they meet, who understand what prayer is, and they do it. And here's the rest of the definition, and this is the part we haven't talked about much yet, but we're going to talk about now, is they do it because they believe in what? The power, the potential, the promise of what prayer does. We do it because Jesus called us to do it, but he also promises that when we do it, and if we do it, and we won't just be people who pray on our own, but we will come together and seek his faith. There are certain things that he promises he will do. And in the time we have left, I want to quickly, this is going to sound like a lot, but I want to tell you seven of them. Seven things God's word promises will happen, 
can happen one way or another will come about when God's people get serious about praying together. You ready? We're going to move fast. Number one, here we go. The first thing Jesus or the Bible shows us that that happens when God's people pray together is churches, those gatherings of believers begin to grow. And that may be spiritually and that may be numerically. I think it's actually both. Turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 2. You can hold your spot in Matthew 5 if you want, but turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 2 because the book of Acts just spells this out all so clearly for us. Because in Acts chapter 2, the setting here, some of you may know the story, it's this. The the church has just been born. It's the day of Pentecost. And and the Holy Spirit has come upon the apostles, 120 people who are gathered together in an upper room. They have been praying. The Spirit comes, and then Peter goes out into the streets with all of these other disciples, and they begin to preach the gospel. And the Bible tells us people start responding immediately to the gospel. And it tells us in Acts 2.41 that as a result of Peter's first gospel sermon, those, verse 41, Acts chapter 2, who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And it says in verse 42, and they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to, what's your Bible say? Prayer. They were praying together. And if you skip a few verses, which we're going to look at again in just a moment, down to verse 47, it says they were praising God and having favor with all the people. And as a result, the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, the interesting thing about the mention of prayer in verse 42, again, there's something that's sort of missing from our English Bibles. But in the original language in which Luke composed the book of Acts, right before that word prayer, it's not in your English Bible, but it is there in the Greek, was the definite article, the. They were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayer, or the prayers. And what scholars believe that's a reference to is the gathering together of God's people to pray. Prayer meetings. Prayer gatherings, there was something, the definite happening, and they were devoting themselves to that. Now, I'm not trying to elevate that above the other things mentioned in this verse. I'm just saying it was as essential as the other things mentioned in this verse. Teaching, fellowship, and the breaking of bread, which I think is probably communion and a reference to fellowship, fellowship meals as well. That prayer wasn't sort of the the fifth wheel. No, it was one of the primary four things here that they did regularly, and as a result, the church began to grow. By the way, if you go back and read Acts chapter 1, remember the church was born in a prayer meeting, not in a preaching service, in a prayer meeting. So when God's people pray together, we're shown in the book of Acts, churches grow. The second thing that happened is, is right in the context of that, part and parcel with it, is believers, individual believers in Jesus Christ, mature. As God's people pray together, God's people grow. Look at the the sort of intervening verses there, beginning back in verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and to the prayer, or the prayers, and everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. Those who believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions, sharing them with all as anyone might have need, day by day with one mind in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. And I don't know about you, but reading that sounds to me like the very definition of people who were moving toward maturity in Jesus Christ. It was changing their behavior. It was changing their lives. It was changing their relationships changing their priorities. When God's people pray together, 
Churches grow, number one. Believers mature, number two. Number three, the unity of God's people, the unity of the church deepens. Unity among believers deepens when God's people pray together. That's also expressed here in Acts 2, but I want to show you it in Acts 4. Turn the page in your Bible to Acts chapter 4. Because the backdrop in Acts chapter 4 is Peter and John, they, they do a miracle. They're thrown into prison for doing the miracle and using it as an opportunity to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're released from prison and told not to preach anymore. They said, sorry, we're going to do it anyway. And they kept preaching the gospel. And, and they came back together and met with their fellow believers upon being released from prison. And it says this in verse 31. When they all got back together, it says they, verse 31, prayed. And it says in verse 31 that when they prayed... The place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak the word of God with boldness, and the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Everybody say, one heart and soul. They were of one heart and soul. Not one of them claimed anything belonging to him was his own. All things were common property. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of Jesus. And abundant grace was on them all. There was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land and houses would sell them and bring the proceeds. And they'd share with one another as anyone had a need. But it happened, again, verse 31, in the context of as God's people prayed. We have a winner. Churches grow, number one. Believers mature, number two. Unity deepens, number three. Number four, the gospel spreads. When God's people pray together, the gospel of Jesus Christ spreads. Go to Acts 13. Turn your Bible to Acts chapter 13, because the story in Acts 13 is is the occasion. You may remember this from our study in the book of Acts. It's the very first time that officially commissioned, commended missionaries are sent out from one church to take the gospel to a foreign land. It's Paul and Barnabas, and they're commissioned by the church in Antioch to go out with the gospel. And how do you think that happened? Well, look at Acts 13, verses 1 through 3. It says, now there were at Antioch, in the church that was there, there were prophets and, and teachers, and they're all named through the rest of verse 1, including Saul, who was eventually Paul. And it says, and while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting. Ministering to the Lord is a synonym for, what do you think? Prayer. While they were praying and fasting together, the Holy Spirit said, I don't know what that was like, but it must have been cool. The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And when they had fasted and, what's your Bible say? Say it out. Prayed. They laid their hands on them and sent them away. And was that a good thing they did? You better believe it was. The gospel began to be spread all over the place, town to town, city to city, nation to nation, as a result of God's people praying and then listening and expecting the moving of God's spirit. When God's people pray, churches grow, believers mature, unity deepens, the gospel spreads. Fifth thing the Bible says is revival starts. When God's people pray together is when revivals start. And frankly, the whole book of Acts is testament to this fact, that as God's people pray, they are revived. Churches are revived. They're filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, and, and revival takes place. But that's not just a New Testament principle. That's an Old Testament principle as well. Go back to the book of Second Chronicles. Some of you know these words. 2 Chronicles 7, verses 14 and 15, God said this a thousand years before the book of Acts. If my people who are called by my name, you know these words, they humble themselves and pray and 
seek my face and turn away from their wicked ways. I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. And my eyes shall be open and my ears attentive to the prayer offered in this place. Yes, I know that promise was for Israel. And yes, I know we're not supposed to haphazardly misapply Old Testament promises to Israel, to modern-day America, or anyone else. But can I ask a question? If we were to do these things, do you think God would ignore us? I don't think so. I don't think so. The promise may be different. The principle still applies. God's people humble themselves and seek his... And in fact, just read. If you want to have some fun, find some books on revival. Look up some stories on revival. I have some. I could lend them to you. Revival, true, authentic, spiritual revival, always is birthed when God's people are praying together, never in any other way. Always when they're praying together. That's how we want revival. We need to pray together. That God would bring it. And they need to start with us. Sixth, in the midst of it all, we would expect this, but we need to mention it just as well. When God's people pray, prayers are answered. When God's people pray together, prayers, in fact, do get answered. None other than Jesus himself told us this in Matthew 18, 19. Jesus said, Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, It shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. I didn't say it. Jesus did. He said, if two faithful hearts come together in prayer, two, minimum, and they agree according to his will, they ask, God's going to answer. Prayers will be answered. Needs will be met. God will move. And in the very next verse, he gives us a final promise, and I think it's the best one of all. Jesus says, when my people pray together, I will show up. When God's people pray together, Jesus shows up. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there among them. And I don't know about you, actually I think I do. I want to be where Jesus is. And I think you probably do as well. Where can you be sure every single time Jesus will show up where two or three have gathered in his name to seek his face? He's always going to be there. That's the promise that he makes. These are the things that can happen when God's people pray together. That's why Pastor Will Davis, let me just close with this. I'm going to share this thought with you. I'm going to give you the big idea and then we will pray. That's why Pastor Will Davis says the following, and I want you just to put down your pen and look away from your Bible and listen to these words because they're amazing. He says, that is why if we understand that these are the things that happen, that can happen, that do happen when God's people pray, what it means is this, that, quote, a gathering of believers is more powerful than any other meeting on the planet. A group of moms meeting together to pray for their kids have more power and authority than a joint session of Congress. A men's accountability group that meets in Jesus' name has more spiritual power than the joint chiefs of staff. A family Bible study has more authority than a meeting of the United States Supreme Court. Because the most powerful gatherings in the world are those that meet in Jesus' name. Because when they do, when they meet aligning with his purposes and seeking his glory, he is there with them.
And that's why the big idea this morning is very simple, but it's very clear. Find out where God's people are praying and get there. Find out where God's people are praying and get there. Because as far as we as followers of Christ are concerned, that is where the action is. And that is where God moves. Father, I pray that you would take these fumbling words, take these many thoughts and ideas and principles and verses, clear away the clutter. Let the main thing, the big idea, your truth be what sticks in our hearts. That you've called us to pray, that our excuses for not praying together don't hold up. And that if we will pray, if we will make it a priority to find one believer, two believers, a a group of of like-minded followers of Jesus Christ and come together and pray, we have the promise that you will be there with us, that you will move, that you will be present and you'll be glorified. Father, we are not yet truly, as Jesus intended, a house of prayer, but we want to become one. We long to be one. We pray that you will make us one. Father, where we've resisted, where I've resisted that, forgive us. Father, convict us, forgive us, cleanse us. Make us not only willing, but able and committed to getting with one another and seeking your face. We might be where Jesus is, that that Jesus might have his way among us, that the gospel might spread, that believers might mature, that revival might start, that Christ would be glorified. Because that's what you've called us to do. Father, take the things of truth spoken here this morning, seal them to our hearts. Take the things of of the flesh and confusion and that are irrelevant and let them be forgotten so that we remember what you wanted us to hear. In Jesus' name, amen.